Welcome to Every Step Podcast. I'm Christina Weston. And I'm Judith Beck. Every Step is the podcast where career and life meet. With a new guest every episode, we explore the gutsy issues affecting everyone in the workplace. Christina, today we're welcoming Greg Savage. Now, Greg is the founder of two $100 million organizations, plus he's on 16 recruitment boards. He's also the founder of the Savage Recruitment Academy and the best-selling author of The Savage Truth, which he also donates all the profits to charity. So that's just to name a few. So welcome, Greg. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. And thank you for mentioning the profits to charity. That's not nearly as generous as it sounds, because you should know that an author gets $1.50 out of every $35 book sold. So um, you, have to, you have to write Harry Potter to make money out of uh, authoring a book, I'm afraid. OK, hold on a second. You got a, you got $1.50? I need to talk to uh, the publisher. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's how it works. Because, you know, there's everyone, there's all the, there's the publisher, then there's Amazon, whoever it is. And by the time it gets... I was shocked, right? I was like, that is not right. Um, but uh, it pretty much is right. So I think, um, I think, yeah, uh, you, you do it for love, not money. Absolutely. <laughs> I think we could have a whole podcast on writing books and publishing. There's a lot, a lot in there. Don't get me started. But today we want to talk about how recruitment is changing. And uh, I think I just want to start it off with some of the things that that companies should look for when partnering with a recruitment company. That's one. And also, you know, what candidates should be looking for out there. So let's just start it off with the with the companies. What yeah. companies should be looking for when they're partnering with um, uh, recruitment organizations? Yes, yeah, sure. I'm very pleased to talk about that topic because it's a favorite one of mine. And it actually, Judith, speaks to a massive dysfunction that exists in the recruitment world. You used the word partnering twice when you introduced that question. And the very first point I want to make is that if a corporation or a company is going to use a recruitment agency, and I believe in most circumstances that's to their advantage, they need to actually partner with them. Now, um, what that means is if an employer, let's, let's just call it a client, because that's a client of the recruitment agency. So that's the language I'm using. If a client gives a job order, a request for help to multiple recruitment agencies, they are not partnering. They are basically throwing the bone on the beach and saying, run little doggies, see who gets there first. And the problem with that is it encourages recruitment agencies to compete on the basis of speed Mm -hmm. instead of quality and it's absolutely this is the dysfunction i speak of because you or i would not go to a brain surgeon because he or she did it the fastest (laughs) nor would we go to a lawyer a house painter or a hairdresser on that basis and yet we have this incredible dysfunction where where companies think they're going to get a better service from recruitment agencies if they make them compete and the reason they do it, and I know that why they do it, because I've asked at least a thousand people face to face in a meeting, why are you doing this? They feel they're going to get better service because in some Darwinian theory, they feel people are going to compete more. But the reality is that if you're not given an exclusive mandate, recruitment companies do the bare minimum and they go back and spend their time with clients who do partner with them. 
So we can talk a lot about that, but the starting point for working with a recruitment company is find a good one, give them equity in the solution, and then hold them accountable to deliver. Um, and, and there's a lot of criticism of recruitment companies, and some of it's well-deserved, but a lot of it is actually driven by the customer who asks them to compete. And remember, 90% of recruitment companies only get a fee if they fill the job. So um, that means what you're really doing is say, I want you to do high-quality work. I want you to invest a lot of time doing a very difficult thing, finding qualified talent in a, in a skill-short market. I want you to spend hours and hours of professional time. Use your networks, your expertise. And then if some other recruitment agency whips in a one resume at the last minute, you'll get nothing. That's so um, working exclusively is the first thing. And then along with that, um, the whole concept of partnership, what that really means is, I mean, you've been in recruitment, Judith, so you know, but there are... Uh, there are plenty of people who go to a recruitment company and, and, and the message is it's really urgent. So the recruitment company pulls out all the stops to come up with three resumes of great candidates who are briefed and ready to rock and roll. And then the client doesn't come back for a month or for two weeks. So you need to communicate, be transparent. Um, you know, it's a two-sided thing. I, I think if, 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 if an employer uses a recruitment company and gives them this partnership um, approach, Mm -hmm. then they then they have the right to have high expectations of the service and the delivery. Yes. But we, we need transparency and authenticity. And you need to work, take the, you know, if your recruiter can only give you resumes, then that's not a recruiter to work with. You want a recruiter who gives you insights and, and can advise you on the state of, I mean, a very simple example would be, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. It's happening right now. I'm sitting in a recruitment company in Melbourne today. Um, there is a feeling from employers that the wheel has turned. There's so much talk of recession. And understandably, they're asking people to come back into the office more. That is something we're hearing a lot. And they're building it into job descriptions. They're saying, we want this person in the office four or five days a week. There is resistance from, from candidates to do that. So that's just a dynamic that will play out. Now, a good recruiter will advise the client and say, look, if you say that your new financial controller has to work five days a week in the office, we'll find somebody, but you're going to be fishing in a very small pond. And we'll do that. But we advise that for the best candidates, let's look at some, some, some middle ground. Now, that's very, very valuable. And you need, you need to um, work with a recruiter. So this is the advice for the employees. Work with a recruiter, has that expertise. Um, but give them some equity in the solution um, and and work work with a recruitment company that has the ability to find unique talents. Now, what I mean by that is, this is also not well understood. A, a lot of employers think of what a recruitment company does is take the job order, runs an ad on a job board, screens them and provides them. If that's all a recruitment company does, then their value is low because they're fishing in a very small pond as well. What you really want is a recruiter who has the ability to find people that an employer can't find themselves. That's the value, right? So that involves a, typically a niche recruiter who has networks, has the ability to approach people, has the credibility. So there's a few tips there, but the, 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 the underlying sort of uh, message is Find a great recruiter 
give them a share. That's why I use this word equity, a share of the solution uh, by taking their advice and bringing them in and giving them good briefings, et cetera. And then you can have high expectations of them. But if you give a job to five recruitment companies, I mean, what I like to say, and I've said it to so many employers across the table, and it's like a light comes on, and I'll finish on this point for this question is, and I've said, this is me as a recruiter speaking to a client. Mr. Client, if you give if you give this job order brief to four agencies, you know, by definition, you're only giving 25% of your commitment to each agency because you've only got 100 to give and there's four of them. That's 25. Why do you think any one of them would give you more than 25% of their commitment in return? And they don't. They say they will, but they don't because what happens in the recruitment company is they'll come back to the office or wherever it is, they'll have a team meeting and they'll say, I've got this job order with this client, looks interesting, but he's given it to three agencies. Has anyone got any resumes? Yeah, we've got a couple, send them off. But now let's go back and do the work with the real clients that treat us with respect. Yeah, it ends up being a potluck exercise as opposed to a strategic recruitment exercise. Exactly. It's a partnership. And you wouldn't do you wouldn't you wouldn't go to six accountants and dump your tax returns material on the table and say the one that comes back to me the quickest I'll pay. I mean that that is a ludicrous suggestion. And yet we do it with hiring key staff. It makes no I, sense. But is this an issue with I remember um uh running uh, running into a friend in Melbourne and he is a senior person running a big um, business development area. And he, and he said, oh, yeah, I've got these positions. Wait, this was several years ago. So I've, I've got this position for a business development manager. And um, we've given it out to XYZ company and, X, you know, the same thing, four or five companies. And I said, those companies that you've given them out to, they also have ads on for a, several BDMs. Who's going to get the best candidate? 100%. So is it going to be the person who uh, interviews them first? How are they going to promote your job to um, that candidate when they're also promoting it to, you know, 10 other, because um, the business development roles were very similar in the industry and in financial services. So there's not a lot of difference. No, there's not. I mean, that happens all the time. There's a lot of negatives for doing that. What you've just said is is certainly one. But also, if you think about it, a good candidate they hear about a job with ABC Limited from three different sources. Yeah. What message does that send? That that sends that the message that they're desperate. How how much better would it be if I was approaching you, Judith, me to say I'm working with XWY? I'm exclusively mandated yeah. to work with them to represent them, and I'd like to have a. I mean, it immediately elevates the conversation, That's and it exactly. immediately piques your interest. But if you've had an email to you by six agencies, you dismiss it. Well, you're worried about your confidentiality. So well, I'm not going to absolutely for recruiters around me and they've told me about a role and then I've heard about it from someone thinking, okay, um, where's my resume going? Because it's very sensitive, especially at the more senior levels. And Christina yeah. and I were just talking about this earlier about the candidate care and the good candidates. And Christina, you were talking about your experience and your, uh, your uh, some friends. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's kind of related to what we're talking about, but the candidate experience, um, certainly before I started my business and having conversations with friends who have recently gone for jobs, is that there's no real candidate care. They're, the candidates are treated like a number, and obviously this this depends on who's recruiting, and I'm talking a lot about when companies do their own level of recruiting often. Um, there's no follow-up, there's no you send in your resume, you send in a contact, emails don't get acknowledged, 
you might have a meeting in an interview, there's no thanks for the meeting, you never hear from them again, you follow up, you never hear from them again. And it's um, it's really quite sad and can be very demoralising for candidates if, if the employer and or the recruitment company doesn't handle things well. And I think it's probably even more challenging when there's a high volume of, volume of applicants. Yes. It doesn't seem to be a, a, and we've got the technology for it, it just seems like us, Judith and I were chatting about it, that somehow manners have gone out the window recently. And I don't know why that is. What's <laughs> happened to basic good manners? Yes, and sadly, that is not restricted to the recruitment process. I it's not. And we, we have this conversation about lots um, of issues, but where have manners gone? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it, is, it is quite extraordinary. And I can pontificate on some examples of that. But the, going back to the core of your issue, it's, it's, it's a fundamental flaw in the process. And you're quite right. The thing that surprises me is how many companies that have big internal teams of recruiters and all the technology, there, there is an underlying arrogance, uh, and I will use that word, which sort of suggests I'm hiring, therefore I have the power. Now, no one articulates that, yeah. but, Correct. That is, but that is the underlying ethos that drives behavior. That and is in exactly. Fact, in actual fact, a lot of people, even if even if you take that very crude view of the world, they're wrong anyway because there's a skill shortage and actually candidates have the power. So if you want to just get away from power, it's about good manners. It's also about good process and it's about employer brand. And, and there are plenty, plenty of candidates who have said to me, I will never work for that company. I don't care. Whatever happens, I would rather sweep the streets than work at that company because they treated me with such Absolutely. Um, and the stories, the stories you mentioned are, are pervasive, but they're, they're even worse where people have been taken to third, fourth interview stage and then got ghosted by a company. Mm -hmm. This is happening every day. Now, recruitment companies um, must also take the blame. Uh, some of them are poorly run, managed, and uh, consultants haven't been trained. But that first point I made, ironically, about exclusivity, one of the reasons, you know, recruitment companies don't come to work in the morning and have a meeting and say, hey, let's have a strategy day about how we're going to piss our candidates off. We've really got to annoy some more <laughs> candidates. You know, that's not how they come to work. They want to do. But if you're given all your jobs in competition with four agencies, you're so busy chasing rainbows because you only fill one out of four that there's no time to service. There's no excuse. It's no excuse. But it's one of the outcomes of this dysfunction. If, 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 if there was more process and more commitment from all parties, people would get better outcomes. Having said that, I just don't understand the manners of people sometimes. Yeah. You know, the other thing is, is that the, they're not only competing against other recruiters who have the brief, they're also in competing against the in-house HR areas who are also trying to recruit so that they don't have to pay a fee. So they're out there trying to do their internal search, internal, and a lot of these bigger companies have ex-recruiters in there and they're forming those talent teams. So, you know, imagine what kind of candidate care would be happening when there's that many irons in the fire and, and the damage that it does do to the brand, but to the managers? Exactly right. Exactly. Exactly right. And uh, as a result, um, a good recruitment companies are, are, for the most part, turning down briefs if they are in competition, because, uh, you know, we've had 18 months of a boom market post-COVID that none of us were really expecting. And there's a shortage of skills. So why would you take it? 
you know, why would you take a job order with a client who's not giving you commitment when you've got other clients? You know, I think back to my days as a recruiter and, and, and I first started in recruitment, we used to sell retainers, right? It was executive search. And the only time I've really had sleepless nights in recruitment and done a lot of scary things is when I'd sold a client a retainer. In other words, I'd got full commitment. The client had paid money before I'd done anything and I couldn't find any candidates. Now, when I was in that position, honestly, I would interview candidates over coffee on a Sunday morning. I, I had to get it done. That was the level of commitment because I, I'd made that promise. Now, do you think any recruiter is going to do that on a Sunday morning for a client who gave him a job in competition with six agencies? Of course not. No, no. So isn't, this part of, isn't part of the issue uh, a case of misaligned financial incentives? And it's not unique to the recruitment industry. Um, I work in the insurance industry and it's pervasive in the insurance industry as well, is when you have a commission basis and you're only paid on success, that that's where some of this misalignment comes into play. But when you actually, as you've just been describing, have a retainer or you're paid for your work in advance, there's a much greater um, commitment on the part of the person providing the service. You get a better outcome. There's greater care. There's greater intellectual property transfer and all of those sorts of things. But if it's just dog eat dog, yeah. then... So you, you've struck on a very good point, but I'll, I'll, it's a little bit nuanced. And what I mean by that is... You're quite right that when you've got several agencies on it and it's winner takes all, people take shortcuts. Mm -hmm. People are, and there's no excuse for this, but they're encouraged to do things that are borderline dodgy because there's so much at stake. Now, a good recruiter who's got a retainer or the commitment of having it exclusively is not pressurized to do anything on the basis of speed or trying to beat somebody else. They're just incentivized to do a great job. And most good recruiters, given a job exclusively, will fill it nine times out of 10. So it's it's a case of commitment. That's the real world. Whether it's retained or exclusive, the employer, the client, the organization hiring, must show commitment to the recruiter. And um, then, then a good recruiter will show commitment in return. If, 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 it's a, if it's a multiple listing, as we call it, then you will get... Um, poor outcomes for all parties wow. that's exactly and you know the other thing i'm noticing that um that is happening in the industry is that they're starting to uh, uh, so many people have told me that they've gotten a position but nobody did references on them which just i just blows my mind because i think how can you not do references and and they're not junior roles either, right? And it's sort of, they want somebody in that role so bad that they didn't call any of their referees. It didn't do any of that. Now, I don't know about you, but over the years, I've seen disaster um, where references were involved. And if they would have taken that person or you know hired that person, it would have been an issue. So not doing references. I, I kind of wonder if their problem is they think, oh, references are... Um, only as good as the people given given them, but but I, my view is that they're only as good as the person asking the questions and doing the information because a good reference. Um, um, I, I saw that on your notes. Um, I completely agree with you. I'd go. I'd go. I'd, I'd make a couple of comments. I, it begs belief to think that you wouldn't do a reference in a country like Australia, where it's legal to do references. In some countries, it's not right. So. We're in Australia. It's legal to do references. There's a due process you've got to go through. You have to advise the candidate and everything else. First thing is a reference 
in many cases can bring to light untruths about the person's application, let alone their skill. Um, they didn't have the job of financial controller. They were the assistant accountant. That's a matter of fact. They didn't earn 150000 a year. They earned 90000 a year. They weren't there three years. They were there 16 months. Yeah. So the... the 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 bare minimum you get from a good reference is just fact checking and let me tell you there is a high incidence of inaccuracy i mean if you want to see um a um uh if you like the place where you can see the most fantasy go and read linkedin because i i see people who used to work for me and they they seem to have had some magnificent oh. retrospective promotions that I was unaware of when yeah. I met them. And they have degrees the that they don't possess. So we know people that have degrees yes. that we know they don't have. There's qualifications. There's recommendations from people I know they married to with different names. There's all <laughs> sorts of. So so what, what you want from a reference check is, first of all, facts, um, which can be uh, uh, empirically and, and that, you know, if they're wrong, if the person's lied to you, if the person's inflated their 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 background, then um, you know that's a big question about whether you'd proceed. It's true that references can be biased, and therefore, when it gets to skills and personality assessment, and therefore, you should never make a decision to hire someone on the basis of one reference or not. It's a it's several. And what I do with references, or used to, don't do a lot of hiring hands on now, but but when I do, I still do sometimes is I will use the reference to confirm areas of strength that I thought were true mm -hmm. and also to check areas of potential weakness. And you ask the questions in a way where you don't give a leading insight to it. Yeah. And, 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 and often you just get reinforcement of what you thought. And, that, and the reference should only be one part of the process, right? There's the interview, there's maybe testing, there's meet, getting to meet other people of your team, several people in your company interview. There's many things you would do but I can't see, you know, I can't see why you wouldn't do a reference check as long as you don't put too much stock on one individual's feedback. You have to really go back about 10 years, especially more for the more senior level roles. And we used to do, you know, the like a 360 type of um, process. But the inter the references were like behavioral interviews. I mean, they were like an, an hour long to asking questions because, you know, um, you have to find the triggers as well. And you have to listen to what how the person is saying it so if they say things like would you hire that person back today and they go um yeah that's that's a no that's a no for me <laughs> that's a red flag it depends but, on the job <laughs> yeah, look, it's um you're right so i think it's an important part of the process and it's um it's it's sometimes uh it actually can work in the candidate's favor so some sometimes candidates or people all of us I mean, a job interview is a performance, right? It's literally a performance. And some people are better performing in those situations. True. And your ability to perform in an interview is not always directly correlated with your ability to do the job under consideration. So, um, and some people suffer nerves in the interview situation and etc. So you've got to take all that into account. And sometimes a reference can really unearth some, some, some diamond information about somebody, which um, will incline you to perhaps overlook a shortfall in, in interview performance, as an example. So it can work in a really positive way. Um, and and some some individuals are not good at selling themselves at all, um, actually. 
and the referee does a better job because it's third-party endorsement. Well, you know, I remember a long time ago when um, it was during the sort of around the GFC time, and I re- and there was a lot of redundancies. And I remember that this guy came in, he was a general manager level, and he had been made redundant, been with the company for about 20 years. And he and he looked like he lost his his best friend. Basically, his suit was crinkled, he was unshaven, the whole nine yards. Now, back then, the recruiters who would tell people what they really think <laughs> more so than they can today. And I was virtually interviewed him. I said, Oh my God, I go, you, you, you're killing me here. I said, I got to put this down. Cause every question was like, Oh, you know, the tone was wrong. He wasn't selling himself. And I said, I got to ask you a question. Would you hire you? And he's going, what do you mean? And I go, well, you look like you're defeated before you've even started. I said, I go, you need to sharpen up, get, get a good suit on, shave, do the whole thing. And he did, and he ended up getting a job at a, um, a large institution, which then I became a uh, one of his pe- people that helped with the recruiting. But the point is, is that recruiters today can't, a lot of times tell people what they really think because they'll be accused of, you know, discrimination or something like that. And we're really trying to help them. Yeah. It, look, you're right. It is difficult. You've got to tread carefully. And yet that advice, as in your case, can be the most valuable. This is a little bit frivolous, but I do remember one of one of my recruiters, this is 30 years ago, interviewing a candidate for a PA's job. And the candidate had come in on her day off and she was very casually dressed, but she was fabulous. And the recruiter had a client who was desperate Anyway, no kidding. Into the toilets they went. The recruiter gave the candidate her dress. Not kidding. She went to the the interview. She got the job. And we're hoping to get the dress back. No, no, she got the dress back. But I mean, I I don't think you could do anything like that these days, but it was a slightly different world back then. But that's real good customer service, though. That's really You know, what I like about it is the recruiter knew that the candidate was perfect and she had her in the office. And she knew the client was desperate. She just needed to get the magic to happen, which is those two people sitting off each other. And the way you dressed in those days, particularly for a PA job, was critical, right? You had to look good. This person looked good, but she was just a bit casual for the bank or whatever it was. So that's what they did. And and it's innovation, right? It's like seeing the outcome is more important than the process. So, But today, I don't know whether I'd be encouraging any of my staff to go to the bathroom (laughs) with one of their candidates and change clothes. I think we'd all go to jail if we did that. But that was okay. Well, you know, feedback is so important. And it's to be able to like to be able to give a candidate all that advice to be able to help them in their career. It's kind of like, well, you know, help us help you um, because that's what we're here for. We don't want to waste time just sending people into um, into an interview. One, if it's not right. And and one, uh, if it's not right for the if you're not right for the, the company. So. Um, I think the way the recruitment seems to be going these days is so fast. Like, let's have a quick phone call. Let's have a quick Zoom. Let's have, and I just wonder how that's going to work in the long term for turnover and for people's career when they're not, they don't seem to be taking the time and effort to really um, get it right. You've hit the nail on the head. Um, First of all, I'll start at at the answer. You said, how is it going to work? It's a disaster (laughs) is how it's going to work. But if we go back a little bit, when we came out of COVID and, and and were still in COVID, recruitment became more remote, right? It had to because we had to work from home. Interviews are done over Zoom. But let me tell you what actually has happened for a lot with a lot of recruitment companies. 
A recruitment company or a recruiter who prior to COVID would spend an hour in a room interviewing someone face-to-face, that migrated to 40 minutes on a Zoom. And then as the market heated up, it migrated to 10 minutes on a Zoom. And then I swear, in many cases, it, it, it migrated to a quick telephone call just to confirm a few things on the resume. So as a result, in many cases, recruitment became very superficial and very transactional, resulting in a lot of the distress that Christina was referring to in terms of candidate service, but also in terms of quality of assessment, measurement, and matching. And um, I actually think that, and that this is advice I'm giving my my clients, is that we, 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 we now need to go the other way. Uh, we're encouraging people to meet face-to-face when, 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 when it's appropriate, at least do a proper Zoom interview, and to dig much deeper. And it goes in, I know one of the questions you started off with was why should a recruitment company use a recruitment agency? You also asked how, why would a candidate use? And what you really want, if you find a good recruiter, that recruiter can be a game changer in your career. That can be a game changer because we we made some frivolous examples of advising, not frivolous, but obvious examples of advising people how to dress, etc. But there's much more nuanced advice. You know, there's 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 how to conduct an interview. There's even people coming in with aspirations, which they're built up through anecdotes. Like I'm on a hundred thousand, but all my friends who do the same as me are earning two hundred. And if that's not true. A great recruiter will calibrate that. It can be the other way around. Someone looking for 80 when they're worth 100. Somebody looking to make a career move, which is really chasing dollars, but actually going to paint them into a corner somewhere. A good recruiter will offer advice. And and, and a good recruiter should be your partner. Now, I mean, I've got a, a, a friend. He's in recruitment. His name's Graham Willen. He's the best recruiter I've ever known. He's just retired. He's in his 60s. He worked in accounting and finance recruitment for 40 years in Sydney. He placed the same people five or six times in their career. I'm not kidding you. From accounts clerk to finance director. And towards the end of his career, the last 10 years, he could walk into any boardroom in Sydney and Melbourne and half the people there he knew because he'd either placed them or treated them with respect. Can you imagine how doors opened, right? Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is he helped a lot of people. And, And what you want from a recruiter is not a processor or a transactor. You actually want a recruiter who's going to represent you like an agent does, you know, like in football or in theater. Those people have an agent to represent them for the best gigs. The footballer can work, can play for 50 clubs, but the agent gets the best deal for him or her. The 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 the, the movie star, no matter how big they are, still have an agent representing them. And and that's what a good recruiter does for a candidate, represent them in the marketplace, because only a small percentage of the available jobs are, in fact, advertised. Plenty of them are under the surface, and good recruiters are networked in. And so they can represent candidates in the marketplace. There's many other benefits, and if you want me to elaborate on them, I will. But, But the biggest one is find a recruiter who partners with you and gives you insights and advice but also represents you, doesn't just screen you and wang your resume around town, represents you to suitable gigs. Ah, shouldn't use that word. Suitable. And also they should ask them once they, once they like, like, doesn't seem like the managers or the HR people probably are asking them, asking the candidates, what did you think of the process of the recruiter? Because often I would get, uh, candidates that were, you know, going through these big search firms because that they were our competition, and 
they'd go, I had the worst experience with them. And, we, you know, but they have the job, right? And right. I said, well, if you get that job, you need to let your organization know because they're not representing the organization the, for the amount that they're getting paid. They should be representing the organization correctly. So why would you use them again? Well, and, it's a really good point. It, it would be fantastic if there was a continuous feedback loop. And what I mean by that is that, as you quite rightly say, the employer should should understand from the candidates how they were treated by the recruitment company. But the employer should also understand from the recruitment company what candidates thought of the process of their employer. Yes. And, and they would be yes. horrible. And a good recruiter with equity who has credibility will gently and appropriately advise. The, like We've had to tell clients that the reason they're losing candidates is that their interview style is too arrogant. Or, or that they don't ask the right questions. Yeah. Or that they keep people waiting. We have to tell you, know, this guy keeps someone waiting in reception for 40 minutes and then interviews her and doesn't even say sorry. Well, she had switched off and she wasn't going to take that job if they begged. No. Um, but there's, so that, I mean, those are very obvious, but there, there, there are plenty of things where where feedback would, would be valuable. And, and the recruiter needs feedback, but unfortunately the recruiter will get feedback asked for or not, from both client and candidate. So not unfortunately, probably fortunately. Um, but it would be great if there was a feedback loop. For But it stems from people being willing to improve the process, right? You have to be willing, otherwise you don't even listen. Yeah. And there's not as much of that around as I would like, particularly from employers. So organisations... Organizations are um, looking for new skills now and they're looking for their leaders to have enhanced skills, especially in, in terms of the human skills, the interpersonal and intrapersonal skills. Has the recruitment process matched into that? Are, are recruiters and employers actively hiring for those skill levels that are now being um, needed and embraced by organisations? That's such a great question. And um, I'll answer it with an anecdote, first of all. I was asked to give a speech to this New Zealand Society of Chartered Accountants, and the uh, they had commissioned Deloitte or somebody to do a survey of accounting firms on a wide variety of things to do with work. And one of the questions they asked them is, what soft skills are you now looking for? conceptual think, you know, because in accounting, it was typically, can you do a balance sheet? Can you da, 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 da. Now they were saying the world's changing. And the and the research came back and was given to me as part of my preparation. And it said that hirers of accountants were looking for all these soft skills, except I'm a director of one of the biggest accounting recruitment companies in Australia and New Zealand, and we never get asked for those things. So it's not true. There's a big gap. Now, I'll come back to this, but on this case, there's a gap between what people said they were looking for, but when they actually went out to recruit, they said chartered accountant with three years' experience of audit. Nothing to do with these so-called uh, softer skills. H having said that, it is true that people are grappling with the understanding of how technology is taking away a lot of the grunt work in many jobs, and therefore, what are the skills we should be looking for? And I, you know, it varies very nuanced because it varies from industry to industry. But I have got, if you're interested, some of the things that I I'm finding people are looking for. Um, there are challenges around assessing for it, though. 
and certainly things we look for when we hire if you're interested in yeah I'd love to love to hear some more because I think this is quite critical because if as organizations we're saying we want more people with enhanced interpersonal interpersonal skills greater levels of self-awareness greater levels of communication ability etc cetera, etc cetera, and we're not actually matching that with our recruiting process then we're going to go round in circles. Yeah, and I think that's where we are. I think it's a work in progress. But take for I'll give you a couple. Take, for example, so I work in the recruitment industry, as you know, and you think you might know what the brief for a recruiter looks like. But one of the things we look for in a good recruiter is empathy, right? So empathy was not on the list of skills that a recruiter had 5, 10, 15 years ago. But we look for that now because, Christina, for the very issues that you raised, that we need people who are not only chasing the dollar and we want them to be successful, but we need them to understand the human impact and the fact that a simple thing, you know, like, like you've got three candidates on a short list. They've had three seconds. They've all had second interviews. One of them gets the job. So you then celebrate with that person, offer them the job. They're happy. But now you've got two very important conversations with the people who missed out. Conversations that need to be empathetic and they need to be nuanced and enough and, 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 and helpful and re, uh, reassuring. And that's a skill. So, um, okay, that's for my industry. An underlying skill that I think, uh, and, and this gets me onto touchy ground, but it, that's not going to stop me. It's looking for people who've actually got grit and resilience. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult thing to measure. And the reason it gets you onto touchy ground is that people will say, but you've got to be mindful of people's mental health. And of course you do. But that is not the same thing. A mental health issue is like any other illness that needs to be dealt with. But grit and resilience are characteristics that can be built on that are going to help you in your job. Interpersonal influencing skills. Right now, influencing skills is, is again something that people don't understand. It's not about just selling like a used car salesman, nothing wrong with that job, but not, not that stereotype. It's more about quality listening and questioning and then reflecting. Um, so it's tied in with listening skills. Phone manner and etiquette. My God, you talk about manners, but phone manner, which isn't manners, uh, is, 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 a, is a largely lost art. And yet, because of there being so much technology, some and, and, and being so unsatisfactory in terms of customer service, some companies, you see them saying, you can speak to us on the phone. The only problem is you speak to someone who doesn't have any ability to actually communicate on the phone. I'm not talking about language. I'm not, I'm not going down that. You know, I'm not talking about accent or anything like that. I'm talking about the subtleties of good phone manner and etiquette. Even the ability to craft a well-written paragraph is a lost skill and is now needed. Now, you, you know, it's quite interesting. You would have heard of ChatGPT. I love ChatGPT. I was about to mention ChatGPT. I use it every day, all day long. It, it is brilliant. It is. It's absolute genius. But be careful because I'll tell you this. If you use it for content, if you use it for communication, you have got to be absolutely careful that you, the human being, endorse what it just said because you must be able to stand up and defend Correct. it. Correct. And you need to have domain experience to be able to validate because sometimes the information it generates, it's still learning, right? It's not correct, but it's a brilliant aid, but it doesn't replace a person's requirement and need to have domain experience. Yeah. And as you said, to, to believe or to validate that what it's saying is holds true for, for you. 
you know, ChatGPT is only in its infancy, right? So just imagine how smart it's going to be and when it gets polished and so on. But but it, but it does lie because it doesn't know the difference between truth and lie. So it will often reference papers that are not the right ones. Also, just remember this: ChatGPT is is simply going into the reservoir of information that is already available on the internet, right? So it is by definition going to give you someone else's opinion. And you, this is my belief, need to be fiercely protective of your authenticity. All right? It's th now that's another thing people are looking for in writing. I, I want people who are not just people who can say the glib thing. You know, I write a blog and thousands and thousands of people read it, a million a year, they tell me. And people sometimes stop me at a conference or even in the street and they say, I like your blog. And I sort of start to preen and I go, oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> and they say, I don't agree with you, but I like it because I know it's your real opinion. Oh, that's good. I've had that said to me so many times. I don't like that. I don't agree with you, bit. but what they're saying, <laughs> is, what they're saying is authenticity is valued, particularly now when we don't know what we read on Facebook or what the president of a country says or, or what an algorithm pushes to us, we have no idea it's, it's veracity, right? So ChatGPT is incredibly powerful and we're using it and, you know, it can do things like you can put a job description into it and ask what are the 10 questions I should ask. It's so so kind of some great things. But just be careful. I wrote a, a, an article on, on LinkedIn and, and a guy obviously used ChatGPT to give the reply and he posted it. <laughs> and I sent a note, said, mate, who did you get that to write for you? I knew because the language was stilted and it was basically all it did was summarize what I'd said and push it back to me. Um, so be careful in its use. Is absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's making smarter people smarter and 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 those that perhaps um, haven't learnt how to leverage it or haven't built up their own skills, it's going to trip some of those up. Or those that aren't sure of who they are, it's going to trip them up. I think so, yeah. We could talk forever, as is often typical of our conversations uh, that we've been having, which is fantastic, no shortage of content. But as we're winding up, um, I'd love to get everybody's feedback on if you were counselling or giving advice to a young person entering the market today, what would you say to them? What would be your words of wisdom to support them in terms of making the best steps in, in their career? Well, as, as you can imagine, it's like asking the meaning of life or how to be a great parent. There's a million, <laughs> there's, a, there's a million answers. And, uh, but I would say this, I would say to a young person that in the end, despite everything you read on social media, especially, about how you should approach your job, which advice is mostly given by people who have no idea and who have achieved almost nothing except a follower count. You should understand that the rewards that come with work, which include self-esteem, financial rewards, sense of achievement, choices in careers, they come to those who put in extra and who contribute more. So my advice would be not burn the midnight oil and do crazy stuff like that, but be visible and be valuable. And that's why I get so frustrated with this so-called trend, quiet quitting, which, by the way, was total bullshit. There was no such trend. It was, a, it was a phrase that crawled its way out of the social media swamp and then got picked up by mainstream media. There is no evidence at all. You'd Google it. 
to suggest that been any change in, 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 in behavior. You've always had people who do extra at work and you've always had people who do the bare minimum. There's nothing new about that. And to give advice to people, it's actually the worst advice I've heard in 40 years to, to, to suggest that people should do the very least in their job to get by. Is not good advice because you're 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 whether we like it or not. It's not about what people want. There seems to be a trend these days that people's feelings seem to be able to trump the truth. <laughs> I don't really think that's the smart way to go. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but there's no point trying to fool each other. The fact is, and I've sat, I've said it to people. I have sat in hundreds of meetings in my life where decisions were made to to let people go. In downturns, you mentioned the GFC, and I've been through three recessions before that. Hundreds of meetings, and it's always the same. The people who are on the wrong list are the ones who haven't put in the effort, That's who right. haven't shown the contribution, who haven't. They're not necessarily the best. They're not necessarily the ones with the most or the least experience. It's visible, valuable. So that's my advice: is don't take short. Why would you take? Why would you lowball? And take a shortcut on something as important. You know, no one argues that anything worth doing in life is worth doing well. So why would you then do the least you can in your career or your job, which one way or the other is going to play into your happiness in your life? That's Sorry, exactly that's my advice. Judith, what are I your thoughts? That like that is exactly right. You know, my my view, if telling kids coming into the um, market for the first time is that it's hard work. That's why they call it work. Mm -hmm. And you've got to put time and effort into it. And you've got to work on your relationship building skills, make sure that you have good mentors. You can't, why do it by yourself when there's people out there that will help you? But it takes effort, time, quality, find what you love. You're going to do things that you hate. You're going to do things that you don't like, but you've got to learn them first before you can. You're not going to be the managing director the first day. <laughs> there are steps that you need to learn. And whatever you do, do it well. Don't don't slack off because that's not going to go in your favor. Yeah. And if I was if I was a kid today, I would be in that office in a New York minute. And I would be trying to learn from the people that are, are in the office because you're not going to make, no one's knocking on your door saying, hey, I'm a connection for you. Uh, gonna, your connections are going to be made by being in front of people. So, so yeah, there's benefits to working from, um, from home and things like that. Obviously, we can. You know, we, we're doing podcast on that. But one of the reasons why Christine and I started this podcast in the first place was because of all the BS out there and all the information that's being given to kids about things like what you were just saying, don't do the bare effort. And so we wanted to say, no, that's not true. <laughs> not, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I'd like to I'd like to add to to both of your comments and say if if you're a new person coming in, and I remember when I was a new person coming through the corporate ranks. Put your hand up, volunteer, ask to join projects. If somebody says, if somebody asks for someone to get involved in something, say yes, be a yes, because that's that is, such, that is such good advice. That is such good advice. And I and I remember talking to a group of people, it was a while ago, and I said, that's exactly, if there's a project, if some, if, 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 a, if a client from interstate needs to be picked up at the airport, you go and do it. Say yes, I'll because do it. Because then you get to know that person and doors open, you know. Um, by the way, you'll enjoy this. That little speech I gave you at the end about the advice, I've given my kids uh, a version of that. And I said it to my 22-year-old not that long ago, and he replied, okay, boomer. So that went well. 
<laughs> but then but then he smiled and said, Dad, you're getting slightly cleverer as I get older. And I said, mate, that's you wising up, not me. Barney, that. And I think that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom. Absolutely delightful. Your passion just oozes out of every inch of your beingness. And um, we're very privileged to have you spend some time with us today. So thank you so much. Thank you to both of you for uh, inviting me on the on the podcast. And I hope um, I hope it helps both what you're trying to achieve and anyone who listens to it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> for more information about Every Step and our guests, head to everysteppodcast.com. To be notified of new podcasts, please subscribe via your favorite listening platform. And of course, follow us on social media and direct message us to share your ideas about guests or topics.